This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. This episode is part of a long series exploring the rise of Christian fundamentalism in the United States through the life of William Jennings Bryan and the Scopes Monkey Trial. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and start at the beginning of Season 5. A few months ago, I gathered some of my friends from my small group into my living room, and we all looked at this large green book on the floor. Uh, Can somebody just read the name of the book on the floor? The Adams Synchronological Chart, or Map of History. Yeah, <laughs> good job. It's a, it's a big title. So we're just going to open it up real quick. Ooh. Yeah, wow. and we'll start here towards the end. This thing is 23 feet long. Believe it or not, if we were to unfurl it, it would only be four feet shorter than the entire house. I believe, <laughs> I believe it. Let's roll it up the walls. (laughs) So I was thinking we would start over on on this side. Uh, First of all, uh, what what do you see? What what are we looking at? Seem to be looking at like a bar graph of lineage, maybe, and countries. And the years are on the bottom. So Mm. it's a it's a timeline of world history. Designed like a bunch of trees with branches. First edition came out in 1871, but it ends, this version I have ends in 1900. I think one of the things everybody knows, I'm, I'm a uh, Napoleon nut, so I, I thought it was fun to look at the Napoleon section, if I can find it when I'm upside down. Oh, that's his nephew. Different Napoleon. Napoleon Bonaparte. Look at how tiny that is. I just think there's something about giant charts that I find fascinating. Yeah. And oddly comforting because it takes this grand story of history and puts it like in a visual representation. Yeah. Um, and to see a guy like Napoleon who had left a huge mark on the world to be, what, half an inch? Yeah. <laughs> He's actually smaller than a lot of the names that, you're, that you have on this line, too. That's true. Yeah, Louis XV is much bigger. Do you, do you guys like charts like this? Do you find them interesting? Yes. Oh, I love them. Yeah. <laughs> I could stare at this for hours. So uh, this chart was created by a guy named S.C. Adams. And by the way, there is a modern romance novelist named S.C. Adams. Uh, So if you Google this guy, watch what you're gonna come up for. No, different guy, different guy. Yeah, so let's go 23 feet in the opposite direction. (laughs) (laughs) So big. So what what do we see at the beginning of this thing? Adam and Eve. Methuselah. Yeah, I saw Methuselah jumped out. Love that Methuselah stuff. This is a timeline of history. What year does this begin? 4004 BC, it looks like. Yeah. Am I right? Yeah, 4004 BC. Anybody know why? Some (laughs) variety of calculation of the lifespans of the uh, people in the book of Genesis added up to date the world back about 6,000 years old. Exactly. Uh, it, it starts. The guy yeah. who came up with the number 4004 is a guy named James Usher. Uh, he was an Irish archbishop, 
and is currently buried in Westminster Abbey. I wish I'd known that when I was there last year. I would have gotten some video. Um, some people think that the Bible, or the Bible puts the date of the beginning of human history at 4004 BC, including uh, the guy who made this chart. There is something so satisfying about standing in front of an atom synchronological chart, or kneeling on the ground to see how events overlapped and tangled with each other. I'm a sucker for charts of all kinds. They seem to just put history in a clear, concise order. It's oddly assuring. But that number at the beginning, 4004 BC, it gives us pause, right? Is that the year the Earth was created, or is it sometime around then, or is the world much older? When we think about the word fundamentalist, I'm sure a lot of us jump to the conclusion that a fundamentalist would believe in a young Earth, maybe 6,000-odd years of human existence. As we've seen already this season, that is not exactly true. Christians of all stripes, including fundamentalists, historically were all over the place when it came to the origins of the planet. That tension reached a breaking point in 1925 with the Scopes Monkey Trial, when belief tangled with belief, messed with our tidy timeline and even some of our heroes, and left us wondering what to believe about anything. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. We all kind of think we know the story, right? Charles Darwin gets on this boat, then looks at animals in the Galapagos Islands. Wow, look at that one! And bam! He invents the theory of evolution. Uh, no. I mean, yes, his theories about natural selection were expressed in the book On the Origin of Species, published in 1859. They really did send shockwaves through so many parts of society. But Darwin didn't invent evolution. In fact, there were already two competing ideas of evolution at least 50 years earlier. One was offered by a guy named Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, or by his whole name, <clears throat> Jean-Baptiste Pierre-Antoine de Monet, Chevalier de Lamarck. The monogram on his bath towel must have been a sight to see. Anyhow, Lamarck worked in Paris in the King's Gardens, became something of a gardening phenomenon. I water the flowers, they grow for me. Simple as that. Then, after being passed over for a prestigious job, he got interested in insects, and geology, and chemistry. The guy was into everything. One day in 1800, he gives this lecture where he presents this big idea that species can change. For years, he publishes on this idea, expanding it with his Natural History of Invertebrate Animals. His theory about how plants and creatures develop included this idea of spontaneous generation, changes in how animals and plants became what they are today. 
And there were two causes for this in his mind. One, the environment. Now, think of a giraffe. They eat leaves. They're munching on them in a state of perpetual salad bar. But then, food gets scarce. Maybe there's a drought. They can't access the foliage because all the leaves are up high. They have to reach for them, really stretch out. So they grow their necks in response to their environment to access those leaves way up high. And eventually you get this long-necked horse thingy that we call a giraffe. Then those characteristics are passed on to their children. The other cause is something more, I don't know, undefined. Something he termed the cause that tends to make organization increasingly complex, or simply, the power of life. It's some unspecified force. Now, that's Lamarck in a nutshell. Evolution happens because of an unknown force. He discovers this idea that living things evolve way before Darwin. Then there was this other guy who approached it from a different angle. His name was Georges Cuvier. In the early 1800s, Lamarck was generally not accepted. Instead, it was Cuvier who scientists looked to. While Lamarck was studying invertebrates and creepy crawlies, Cuvier was curator of the vertebrate fossils at the French Museum of Natural History. Working with these fossils made him think. Maybe the timeline in the Bible, in Genesis, wasn't quite literal. He studied the fossil record and noticed big gaps. One group of species was suddenly completely replaced by another group of species, as if they disappeared, went extinct. These gaps, he concluded, must be caused by cataclysm. An ice age, or perhaps a worldwide flood. And this guy, Cuvier, didn't accept evolution. Thought that species were too complex to evolve. You can see why Cuvier's ideas appeal to scientists who are Christians. Because it discounted evolution, explained the fossils, and perhaps allowed for Noah's flood. Scientists didn't agree with each other. Some thought that evolution did occur, and others thought that Noah didn't. But many accepted the idea that the Earth is much older than what James Usher said in the 1600s. You know, Mr. 4004 BC. That's a really simple version of where the debate stood in the 1850s. Bible literalists who believed in a literal six-day creation by God, those who thought that the timeline was longer for creation but there was no evolution, and those who liked a long timeline plus evolution. Then Darwin dropped a bomb on the world. In his book, Darwin claimed that not only did species evolve, but those changes weren't done by some divine force. They were the result of random chance. You may remember in an earlier episode that Darwin started out believing in God, but over time, his belief waned and he became an agnostic. This he attributed to the cruelty of nature, like when a cat plays with a mouse, letting it go, catching it, cruelly toying with its prey before finishing the job. Nature, in Darwin's mind, was mean. Therefore, 
he thought a loving God couldn't create it. BTW, I never personally liked the logic of this because the God of the Bible clearly sees a lot of nasty stuff happen and even causes some of it. The central story of the book is a crucifixion, after all. Anyway, I digress. American Christians were really somewhat split over the idea of evolution, and and that requires a bit of explanation. This is Edward Larson. He's a professor at Pepperdine University and the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Summer for the Gods, an excellent book about the Scopes trial we'll be using for the next three episodes. Now, many scientists in the 1800s were Christians and broke new ground. Early in the 1800s, a variety of really evangelical Christian or devout Christian geologists had pioneered the idea of the earth being very old, the idea that there were ages of geological time before today, and they didn't know how long the earth was. That was because of the discovery of fossil remains and of of the geological record by people like Adam Sedgwick in Buckland in England to visible and very devout evangelical scholars. And then in America, Edward Hitchcock and James Dwight Dana, two other evangelical geologists. And so Americans and Europeans generally had come around to believe that the earth was very old. They didn't know how old, but they came up with a couple different theories to explain it or reconcile it with the biblical account by saying that the days of creation symbolized ages of geological time. This theory is pretty straightforward. The Bible says that God created the world in six days, then took a day of rest. What if the days described in the Bible don't mean, you know, 24 hours, but instead eras? Or perhaps there is a gap in the biblical record, some period of time that is just lost in the mix. Yes, God created the world, but the Bible skips an era. That was generally reflected among evangelical scholars and evangelical theologians. It was widely accepted, the Schofield Reference Bible, the so-called Bible of the Fundamentalists that was brought out around 1900, reflected both theories. I thought my small group should examine this for ourselves. So after looking at the Adams chart, we dusted off my copy of the Schofield Reference Bible from earlier this season. So we're going to go to page four here, which is the use of evening and morning may be held to the limit day of the solar day, but the frequent parabolic use of the natural phenomenon may warrant the conclusion that each creative day was a period of time marked off by a beginning and ending. Um, So partially what they're saying is that the days at the beginning of Genesis might not be 24-hour days that we know them as. Kind of an interesting thing coming from a Bible that was written for fundamentalists. Yeah. Um, Lauren, would you mind reading where it says number one? Yeah. Man was created, not evolved. This is a expressly declared, and the declaration is confirmed by Christ. So the the stance of the Schofield Reference Bible is kind of two two pronged. When God created it, it is kind of up for grabs because the days may not have been twenty four hours. Yeah. Um, but they they asserted that man was not evolved. One kind of broad stance and one of one strong stance. That's kind of a big deal. As Ed Larson said, this is the Bible of the fundamentalists. And there's some wiggle room there 
to fit in an older Earth. Virtually every Christian of any sort, mainline or evangelical or proto-fundamentalist, would have accepted this old Earth history. Including William Jennings Bryan. That will be important when we hit the Scopes Monkey Trial. In the middle of the process of accepting that in the 1859 and then after that, the idea of organic evolution came up through the writings of people like Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace. That was more problematic for Christians. But as the evidence for evolution accumulated, most Christians came to accept not strict Darwinian evolution, not evolution by natural selection and random chance mutations, but rather some sort of a theistic evolution that would be led by Asa Gray, for example, the evangelical um, biologist at Harvard. A variety of other scholars just came to accept that the earth was very old. They already thought that and that animals and plants had evolved over time but that God had guided the process. Which is less like Darwin, who said that these things happen by chance, and more like Lamarck, the guy who studied invertebrates. Remember him? He called the thing that advanced evolution the force of life. Now, some Christians saw that force as the hand of God. Not all, mind you. There is a whole spectrum of belief here. My Adam's synchronological chart goes all the way up to 1900, so, you know, some people still believed in a young Earth. And listen, I'm not going to be so excited if I hear people say that I said that all Christians in this era believed in evolution. Let's keep this spectrum of belief in mind. From God created the Earth in six literal days to full-on evolution, and everything in between. That was captured in the series of pamphlets called The Fundamentals which was uh, the root of the fundamentalist movement. I did a whole episode on the fundamentals just a few months ago. You can check it out in your feed. If there was anything that fundamentalists stood for, it wasn't that the earth was young, created within the last 10,000 years, or it wasn't that evolution hadn't occurred, theistic evolution, God-guided evolution. It was where humans stood in the process. Humans, me and you. Because for a long time, we've had this idea that humans are made in the image of God. We are a special creation, different from monkeys and giraffes. That distinction is vital to understanding this era of the fundamentalist movement. Yeah, there was wiggle room on the timeline of how God created humanity in the minds of some fundamentalists. They hadn't drawn hard lines on that. It came down to a question of value. Are humans set apart? Fundamentalists in the 1920s quickly lost their battles for the Northern Baptist and Northern Presbyterian denominations. Their attempts to stop liberal theologies from spreading failed not just there, but also in seminaries and churches. One of the reasons we've covered for their loss is that they were spread too thin as their focus shifted to opposing the teaching of evolution in public schools. When we return, we'll explore that shift and the role played by the guy we've been following this whole season, William Jennings Bryan. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss 
hard truths, and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. William Jennings Bryan failed at three attempts at the White House. He managed to keep the U.S. out of World War I as Secretary of State for years, but eventually left his job when Woodrow Wilson committed us to the fight. He's one of the key reasons that the Democratic Party shifted from conservative to liberal. No matter how many times he dipped out of the public eye, he resurfaced. Brian, as you'll remember, was concerned about social Darwinism. But the story is a lot more complicated. It's possible that at this point, you might only see Brian as a godly hero, a commoner, potentially an example to be followed. Well, there is something we need to talk about. Brian was one of the heads of the Democratic Party during the rise of Jim Crow. That's vital to painting a full picture. We're not going to be able to let Brian seem totally righteous. This was an era of real hatred, and Brian is culpable. Now, let's set the stage. We'll take a short diversion to talk about the KKK because it helps to set the scene of what was going on in the 1920s. The Klan was at its all-time peak in 1923 with three to four million members, two years before the Scopes trial. Only a few years earlier, it was all but dead. Then, in 1915, D.W. Griffith's epic film The Birth of a Nation was released and became an instant hit. It's a three-hour epic about the end of the Civil War and Reconstruction in which black people are depicted as immoral, only to be stopped by men in white hoods. In one scene, a woman leaps to her death rather than marry a black man. Now, you actually see the jump and a body hitting rocks at the bottom of this cliff. I was not ready for that. I thought black and white movies were supposed to be PG. Well, it turns out, no. This was decades before the Hays Code set limits on conduct in films. It may have been the first film ever shown in the White House. President Wilson is reported to have said, It is like writing history with lightning, and my only regret is that it is all so terribly true. That quote is disputed, but Wilson did resegregate the civil service. The film was used as a literal recruiting tool for the Klan and was shown to new members. Historians credit it with the resurgence of the movement. And the Klan fed not just on fears of black people, but also on ideas of a grand Jewish conspiracy and worry over immigration. This was fed by a publication known as the Protocols of Zion, essentially the QAnon of its time. It was a hoax, but thanks to Henry Ford, was widely circulated in the United States. As I said, the KKK also harassed Catholics, as many of the new immigrants who came from Europe were Catholic and the Klan wanted to preserve their kind of America. To his credit, Brian denounced the KKK for their secrecy and hostility to other faiths. But Brian was no angel. He both fought for the basic dignity of mankind, 
but didn't see black people as equal to whites and referred to them in an unpublished memoir as the most backward of Earth's people. He saw whites as superior to all others except, perhaps, the Japanese, whom he liked. In February of 1923, he spoke in front of the Southern Society of Washington, D.C., in which he explicitly endorsed segregation and voting rights restrictions. Again, Bryan didn't like the Klan, but at the 1924 Democratic Convention, he burned much of his political clout by blocking the party from denouncing the KKK as part of the platform. The Democrats relied on the South for votes, but even then, it wasn't a cool move. And suddenly, Bryan was a political outsider. Just one year before the Scopes monkey trial. It kills me to report this stuff. I sometimes wonder if, I don't know, maybe I don't really believe in heroes because it seems like there's always some skeleton hiding in a closet. We're going to be talking a lot more about why Brian and the fundamentalists were against teaching evolution in schools. They wanted to maintain the dignity of humanity. But there is a big ol' asterisk hovering over that. This man who fought against war and established groundbreaking treaties, who fought monopolies and detested Teddy Roosevelt's love of war, was a racist. Head of a party who kept black people apart from whites. That's a pretty big asterisk. We've still got so much to cover. Let this information inform you, but try not to let it overwhelm everything else. He had long been a proponent of workers' rights. He was nominated three times for president by the liberal ring of the Democratic Party. And he had almost socialistic viewpoints with respect to politics and, and workers' rights and, and the oppression of labor by the capitalist robber barons of the day. Not who you probably think of as a racist, right? Anyhow, he was against social Darwinism. And so he had read that John D. Rockefeller and Andrew Carnegie and other leading capitalists had justified their practices expressly in their writings and in their speeches on a Darwinian struggle for survival. Rockefeller, Carnegie, guys like them earned their money in the early 1900s on the backs of working people. Rockefeller, by the way, was a modernist Christian who cleaned up his church even when he was a wealthy man. He taught Sunday school, but he refused to pay his workers a living wage, backing his business practices with the idea of the survival of the fittest. Brian was, yes, a racist, but also was a guy who did a lot for working class people. And he did not miss the connection between terrible labor practices and evolution, Rockefeller's philosophy. He could say, this is a reason why we can't accept this as true because it justifies the exploitation of labor by capitalists. Further, by the time World War I came, there were some German militarists who justified, there were also some English militarists who did as well, who justified the fight in World War I on Darwinian struggle for survival. Either England and its cause, or Germany and its cause, would prevail. This was captured in Headquarters Nights, which was a book written by a Quaker professor who objected to the war as much as Brian did and went over and interviewed a bunch of militarists. And some of them justified their activities on 
so-called Darwinist grounds. Brian read these books, Headquarters, Knights, and The Science of Power, that solidified his stance about teaching evolution in schools. And remember, he was not against the science. He was not a young Earth guy. He was against the cruelty he saw done in the name of survival of the fittest from guys like Carnegie and Rockefeller. The Science of Power explored Darwin's impact on Nietzsche. Nietzsche, remember, was the philosopher who created the idea of a Superman, the philosophy that drove Leopold and Loeb to murder a teenager. Brian wrote in one of his books that Nietzsche carried Darwinism to its logical conclusion and denied the existence of God, denouncing Christianity as the doctrine of the degenerate and democracy as the refuge of the weakling. He overthrew all standards of morality and eulogized war as necessary to man's development. There were credible worries that this stuff was going to take hold. And before you email me, there are those who argue that this mischaracterizes Nietzsche's philosophy. My goal here is not to rehash his ideas, but instead how his philosophy was interpreted or misinterpreted. Let's circle back to one of the big ideas of this season. How do we deal with something we disagree with? How would you have dealt with the threat of social Darwinism? Now, Brian thought that it's so important for people to believe that God created us, created humans, because then we should not reflect a law of hate where we develop through a Darwinian process, but whether we should expect uh, and embrace a law of love where we were created by a loving God and therefore should act in a loving way to our workers, to our employers, to our neighbors, to our to other countries, that that should be the type of, of lifestyle we should exhibit. And it is important that that be taught to our public school students. He had pushed for women's suffrage. He had pushed for child labor laws. He would pushed for laws protecting workers' rights. He pushed for the regulation of railroads and the regulation of big business. So why not push for um, the regulation of teaching? This from a guy who was a post-millennialist with ties to both the social gospel and the fundamentalist movement. A Democrat, but a liberal Democrat in a time when they were the conservative party. Against human cruelty, but his wife led a eugenic society, and he denounced selective breeding. He was a tangled mess of beliefs, right? It's hard to put him in a box. But since he thought it was the government's role to legislate in such a way as to bring about the kingdom of God here on earth it made sense to fight evolution in schools. Because doing so would stop kids from being taught the Rockefeller way. Brian was also keenly aware of a 1916 survey that explored the religious beliefs of college professors and students. It revealed that immorality increased as one progressed from freshman year to senior year. And also established a link between evolution, higher education, and losing one's faith. Brian was still touring the country giving speeches, and parents came up to him to confess that their children stopped following God after going to college. Again, how do you solve a problem like that? To a guy who only has a hammer, every problem is going to look like a nail. So if you're a legislator, well, you solve your problems with legislation. Late 
late in 1921, a Kentucky missions board recommended a law to block the teaching of evolution in public schools. Bryan thought this was a great idea and toured the state for a month promoting it. The legislation failed by narrow margins, but it kicked off a flurry of activity. Soon, all sorts of guys from this season were involved. John Roach Straton advocated for a block in New York State. J. Frank Norris did the same in Texas. Billy Sunday got on board. William Bell Riley, founder of the World Christian Fundamentals Association and the real Mr. Fundamentalist, traveled the U.S. debating modernism and evolution. Critically, he also got the WCFA involved. So this legislative battle was very much tied to fundamentalists, thanks to guys like Riley. In March of 1925, Tennessee passed the Butler Act, blocking educators from teaching evolution in schools. Notably, Bryant suggested that there be no penalty for breaking the law. He didn't want there to be any martyrs for the cause. Crucially, Tennessee ignored his advice. Clarence Darrow, perhaps the most well-known lawyer in the U.S., the defender of Leopold and Loeb, wrote articles denouncing the law and William Jennings Bryan. Soon enough, they would face off in a Tennessee court to dispute it. And this, this battle in a courtroom, is the nexus of the whole season we've been going through. This is it. We're almost there the big historic showdown that defined the early years of fundamentalism, kicked off by the Butler Act in Tennessee. The law was immediately questioned by the ACLU, and what they needed was a test case. They wanted to poke at the law, look for weaknesses in it, like how the Virginia colony tested the eugenics laws in the courts. They needed a teacher, any teacher, in Tennessee to teach evolution, Darwin says we all come from apes, get caught, and go to jail. Then they could sponsor a legal challenge to the Butler Act. A young teacher named John Scopes became their man. Now we'll get into that story in the next episode. It's oddly bonkers and well worth looking into. So there's this test case set up, pitting fundamentalists versus evolution, free speech against the will of the majority, and Brian against Darrow. Even the pairing of those two guys reinforced that this was more than a battle about a law. It was a contest between Christians like Brian and atheists like Darrow. Fundamentalists like Norris, Riley, and Sunday crisscrossed the nation to raise public support for the Scopes trial and Brian. But here's an interesting thing. None of those other guys showed up. Now, there was a lot of hoopla and grandstanding and stumping for the cause, but when the rubber met the road, Brian ended up in Dayton, Tennessee, alone. The other fundamentalists didn't show. They had other commitments and listened via radio. But they weren't there. That's one of the reasons Brian got so associated with fundamentalism so long after his death. He was the guy who showed up to the showdown. I've set the stage. Now, the next few episodes are going to cover not just the Scopes Monkey Trial, but also the repercussions and the way we're almost all telling the story wrong. It's held up by some as this monumental knockdown drag out where evolution won, or the moment that killed fundamentalism for decades. 
Turns out, neither of those is true. In fact, a lot about how we talk about the Scopes trial is just not accurate. But it tells us a lot about the early days of Christian fundamentalism. Before we get there, take a moment to pause. Because I imagine a lot of us are going to walk away today thinking that all fundamentalists were anti-science or all racists. They were not all that way. And I want to leave us with a few thoughts, big questions that we're still dealing with today. First, it's hard to put Scopes in its context. I can't help but see that both fundamentalists and modernists operated on fear. What happens if those people get their way? I keep coming back to the same thing in my mind. Is fear a legitimate way to motivate large groups of impressionable people? There was a lot of evidence of social Darwinism going sideways in that day. But what was the best antidote? Was it fear of immigrants and people with different skin colors because they were bringing in new ideas? Or was it name-calling or blaming everyone on the other side? Or perhaps was the best medicine simple righteousness? Finally, after chatting with listeners online and viewing comments, I can't help but think that we as a culture long for positive role models. People who really do it right, who aren't secretly racist or corrupt or whatever. Someone to look up to. Clear answers. I think part of us wants all of history to be laid out in front of us like the Adam synchronological chart. Clean. Reduce the bad guys down to tiny little boxes. Mere inches in a 23-foot chronology. What I will say is that in the melee of the first publicly broadcast trial in the U.S., don't lose sight of the ultimate point. What matters is not that we figure all this out or put it onto a graph that we can hang on our Sunday school rooms, but where we land with God. Fundamentalists wanted to be right at all costs. Modernists wanted to be perceived as enlightened and nice. What do you want? Is it a tidy little answer? A chart that tells you where you are, who your people are, and where you're headed? A strongman leader? Or to follow Jesus? Because he didn't oppose wickedness by becoming the lesser of two evils. He didn't say, sure, we're bad, but not as bad as those guys. He taught and promoted righteousness, called out hypocrisy, took sin seriously, sent his message to all tribes and all tongues. It isn't tidy, but it is solid. It's good. And regardless of whatever happens with plants and animals, goodness... Well, goodness doesn't evolve. Special thanks to Ed Larson, author of Summer for the Gods. It's such a good book, you guys. I mean, don't ask me, it won a Pulitzer Prize. We'll be continuing our conversation with Ed for the next two episodes as we explore the Scopes Monkey Trial. You can find a list of my sources on the website and in your show notes. This show is listener supported, and it's a special project because I'm not trying to pander to any one specific side. And that's what gets shows financed these days. Picking a side and hurling rocks at the other one. Instead, I'm just trying to understand what happened and how we lost track of Jesus while also trying to promote Christianity. If you want more stories like this, visit truespodcast.com donate or follow the links in your show notes. There you can give via PayPal, old-fashioned check, Patreon, or Venmo. 
This was a super heavy episode. As a treat to those who give a little each month via Patreon, you'll hear a conversation I had with my podcasting friend Marcus Watson as we discuss our separate hikes on the Camino de Santiago last summer. It's really encouraging and a good break from all this heavy stuff. Thanks to all the people who gave their voices to this episode. My small group, Lauren, Nick, Laura, Hannah, and David. I'm also indebted to my friends B.T. Stevenson, who voices William Jennings Bryan through much of this season and is a really great guy, and Jerry Dugan from the Beyond the Rut podcast. Truce is a production of Truce Media, LLC. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.